Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> Somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, March 19th, 2012, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I am Matthew Zachary, a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. And I'm Lisa Bernhardt, 16-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. It's not okay. It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer every single year. So, got cancer? Under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. All right, tonight's show, everybody, pay attention. Very, very important. Patient adherence and compliance is the topic of tonight's show. Emily Morrison joins us. She's a young adult survivor of brain tumor, had a brain tumor, and she survived that, and she's here to talk all about it. Alexander Simon, senior producer of Vents Division of Frost and Sullivan, is here. Dirk Schroeder, he is Executive Vice President of Ola Doctor, and he's here to tell us all about that. And kicking it off in the Survivor Spotlight, Sue Campa, Young Adult Survivor, Ewing Sarcoma. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a.k.a. the I'm Too Young for the Cancer Foundation, online anytime at stupidcancer.org. We are not your father's cancer society. We're not. But we are bringing the cause of cancer under 40 to the national spotlight where it belongs. So, welcome aboard another fun and exciting romp to the hay on tonight's Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And the Stupid Cancer, welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes. Download us there for free. It's automatic. It's easy. As we broadcast live tonight, as we do every Monday night from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And a final reminder, the Stupid Cancer Show has a live interactive chat room during each and every broadcast. We invite you to join in the fun. Connect with our friends and ask questions of our guests. And now our self-ingratiating applause of the week. Thank you very much. Great thank, you, thank you. Great Thank you. Thank you. We are Kenny Caneless tonight. We are. KK-less. But we are supplanted by, you are our pseudo-ginger tonight, Reverend Dr. James Manning. He's moved up a seat. I'll try to live up to those expectations. You're in the redhead seat tonight. Does that mean I'm going to have to turn redhead? It means you have several chronic diseases now. We're going to have to make you blush. Well, but I already do. 
now you have twice as many. <laughs> Shit. The ones you had are cured, <laughs> and you're all new ones now. More the merrier. <laughs> we can turn a space red. That'll be fun. Yes. That's no, easy to do. Kenny, yeah. we, are, we, are, we are Kenny Caneless tonight because the, we, the kickoff of the stupid cancer road trip sponsored by Volkswagen, a 10-city, 10-day tour across the country through our many southern chapters, culminating in the uh, OMG Cancer Summit. That's right. All the way out to L.A. and then back yes. to Vegas. Kenny is making stops in D.C. Metro tonight, Super Cancer Happy Hour in D.C., Tomorrow night, Raleigh-Durham, the next night, Nashville, the next night, New Orleans, and the next night, Austin, and the next night, Dallas. Then they get a day off in Roswell, New Mexico, to get abducted and abused by aliens. Aliens with cancer. They yes. get probed. Yes. Alien they'll, survivors. They'll have their, uh, their chemo probes. Yeah. And then they will have a happy hour in Phoenix, and then in Orange County, and then in San Diego. You're doing all of this without actually looking at the schedule. I'm impressed. I know the schedule. I built yeah. the schedule. Kenny and I built it. If I didn't know it, I'd be embarrassed. Well, still, you know, you've had a brain tumor. That's 10 cities. I did. Yeah. I did. I did. I had a stroke. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> exactly. And then culminating on um, Wednesday, I think it's Wednesday the 28th in Vegas at right. the Palms Casino, and then we kick off the summit on Friday the 30th. That's correct, sir. So, again, go to stupidcancerroadtrip.org and stay up to date. And if you live in any one of those cities, D.C., Metro, Raleigh, Durham, Nashville, New Orleans, Austin, Dallas, Phoenix, San Diego, or Orange County, by all means, please come out to our Stupid Cancer Happy Hours. Uh, check the schedule, and we can't wait to see you there. Take photos with our epically branded Stupid Cancer Beetle Turbo it says OMG Summit on the sides of the doors and stupidcancer.org on the hood. And go to Twitter and hashtag VWDOSRoadTrip. Lisa with the social media push. Come on. Come on. Very nice. Yep. Considering Abe Bogota wanted to friend you on Twitter today. No, it was Ed Asner. <laughs> Ed Asner. Okay. Close. I have, I, we have six mutual friends, Ed, Ed Asner and I. You know, I'm friends with Mel Brooks on Facebook. Are you? No, I'm not. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think I might have. Maybe I'll friend him right now and see if he wants to come on the show at some point. Ed Asner. Yeah. <laughs> six. We have six mutual friends. Let's get Hume Cronin on the show too while we're at it. He'd be dead. Hume Cronin didn't die. Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin. No, no, uh, not Hume Cronin. Hugh Downs. <laughs> right. Hugh Downs. Sorry. Yeah. Hume and Hugh. <laughs> yeah. No. Hume Cronin and Hume Jessica. Hume Cronin right. is long. That's the batteries on included. Six cocoon, feet under. Cocoon guy. Unless right. he was cremated, I'm not sure. Right now, but no. he's long gone. Yes. Hugh Downs. Why Hugh Downs? Because he's just as old as Ed Asner. <laughs> he just looks There's old. There's a perfect rationale for having him <laughs> on the show. <laughs> so the Volkswagen road trip uh, has kicked off today, and we announced today that uh, along with our partnership with Volkswagen, we are announcing the Stupid Cancer Get Busy Living Award, which is a uh, competition for young adult survivors who are registered attendees of the conference to be nominated to win a free two-year lease of a Volkswagen Passat turbo diesel, uh, clean diesel technology, um, uh, free two-year lease. That's so, awesome. So you can go to, uh, uh, what is it? Get, I registered at the summit. GetBusyLivingAward.org. And if you are, a, not, the basic eligibilities, and you could read the fine print on the website, basic eligibility is you must be a young adult cancer survivor, you must be over 25, you must be a registered attendee of the OMG Summit, and you must have a clean uh, driver's license and, and auto insurance. 
and right. be present at the summit. You no, just we, be right we had to get rid of that. You don't have to okay. be at the summit. We hope you're at the summit because we're going to be giving you keys at the summit if you win. But nominate somebody at getbusylivingaward.org. But you have to be registered at the summit. You have to be if a registered attendee. And, some, and something happens and right. you don't show up, well, if you don't I show guess up, we've made amends for that. But. Right. If you don't show up but you're still registered for the conference, yep. it, it counts. You cannot be nominated if you are not a registered attendee, and registration is closed, so no one can just register now and be one of those cancer fakers and win the contest. So we give you a car for two years. You, yes. have, you just have to put gas in it. Yeah, it's gas. Yeah. I think Volkswagen... And don't wreck it. No, no, don't wreck it. But It's yeah. like getting a car from Hertz, basically. They're giving you a loaner lease for two years, all expenses paid, no insurance burden, on the, there's no transfer taxes. You just get the car. And I think Volkswagen will deal with um, oil changes if you want it. You know, but it's a car. you got to put gas in it and right. you know, inflate the tires and clean it and whatever. But pretty epic relationship with Volkswagen. That's fantastic. And right. as a reminder, everybody knows this, but just in case, Will Reiser, he's getting our other uh, big deal award there, a screenwriter for 50-50. Yeah, he's getting a Stupid Cancer Extreme Survivor Award. Yep. He's going to be there joining us, and he's very excited about that. Literally joining us, you and me. Yes. Lisa and I will be on the stage, and we'll be on the couch. We will be reclining on a couch with Will, the three It'll of us. It'll be Passover. It'll be something to witness. It might be Passover. I think it's Passover soon. It is soon. Chag Sameach. What? Gesundheit. Yes. Uh, but the news of the day, besides that being epic news, the road trip and the Get Busy Leaving Ward, and yes. our phenomenal relationship with Volkswagen of America. Das Auto. Das Auto is this Not ridiculous, oh, ridiculous, ridiculous BS going on in Texas. Lisa, all you. Oh, my goodness gracious. I'm enraged. So Rick Perry does away, basically, with Planned Parenthood because Planned Parenthood offers myriad services to women. One of them is consultation when it comes to aborting a pregnancy. And because he did so, he evidently broke a law according to the federal government who hands out uh, state money for Medicaid. And the women's health and uh, it's the women's health, I have to get this right, the women's health program uh, in Texas, which is largely funded by the 90%, federal. 90%. 90% is funded by the government. By the government. is uh, That program is going to be pulled because he yanked Planned Parenthood and nearly 50% of the services of that women's health program are provided by Planned Parenthood. So he evidently, uh, by Medicaid law, a state cannot restrict a woman's ability to choose a provider simply because that provider offers separate services, which in this case is abortion, that aren't even paid for by the Medicaid program. Right. So nevertheless, so women in Texas are screwed, we're yeah. very sorry to say. If you can't afford, if you don't have health insurance and you need to go, to Planned Parenthood, or to go to not even that through this this entire women's. Um, you just want to get screened. You want to get yeah. Tested. You want to get screened. Right. You want to get tested. Yeah. You have to find out another way to be able to afford to do this. So it's going to basically fall on the primary care physicians, or fall on the hospital networks, and they're going to get over, overloaded, overburdened. Yeah. Service quality is going to uh, just get thrown out the roof. There's a goddamn war against women in this country. There is. I'm it's, really upset about it's this. It's really. I have an idea. I say we raise some money to have Rick Perry go through gender reassignment surgery. Nice. Maybe he'll start to understand the needs of patients I'm when gonna, he needs those services. Then he'll sound like this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm the governor of Texas. <laughs> Wasn't Pee Wee? Didn't Pee Wee go to the Alamo? Yes, he did. He <laughs> did. For the basement Looking for of the his, Alamo. His bike was in the basement of the right. Alamo. Right. Exactly. <laughs> 
There's our Texas connection. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, man. So when the stupid cancer road trip hits Dallas and Austin, you know, they can... We're they, looking for you, Rick. Yeah, We're yeah. coming after we, you. We're going to scoop him up in the Beetle. Yeah. Es- escort him out to Arkansas. Hog tie him in the trunk. Yeah, right. <laughs> we won't get in trouble for that. Nope, not no, at all. No, nothing at all. We'd have a lot of supporters. Yeah, we probably would. We probably would. Uh, all right, well, let's uh, let's get to our, our Survivor Spotlight here. All right. I'm going to do the honors here with Sue. Sue Camp is a six-year survivor of Ewing sarcoma, rare bone cancer. tends to occur more in young boys, so she was absolutely super, super, super psyched that as a woman pushing 30, she was diagnosed with this disease. And she has written a book about her experience being treated in a pediatric cancer ward. Pediatric cancer ward when she was pushing 30. Wait a minute. Something's not right with that. Uh, currently seeking a publisher. So listen up. This is her moment. you got to seize this book. After eight years in New York City, she currently lives in Boston. We're going to hear all about the rest of her story. And we're thrilled to welcome for the first time in the Survivor Spotlight, Sue Campa. Hey, Sue. Hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you just fine. Fantastic. You know, one thing I wanted to bring up right away before we get to your story is that you were one of the very, very first I2Y community members here in New York City. Indeed. You and sh- yet I do not remember how we met. It might have been through some drunken alcoholic social event. I'm sure it was. Uh-oh. Yeah. Right. Let's start with that story. <laughs> <laughs> we don't remember it. No, we don't. Too bad. But, but literally, you are one of the very few people that, that have seen this organization go from nothing to full throttle in five years. Yeah, and I'm excited about Vegas. I think that's sort of the pinnacle of uh, just how much you've grown. It, it, we're very impressed by it. and uh, <laughs> We're very impressed with ourselves. No, I'm, I'm impressed with the fact no, that people are actually clamoring. To, we're getting emails. We're, impre- we're impressed with our supporters. Well, that's the whole thing. Like, like people, we were so, like, worried last summer. Are people going to come to Vegas? Is this going to be, like, just another gimmicky thing that we try to pull off? Yeah. We have people emailing into the organization on a daily basis begging to be put on the wait list, which has been closed. And we're we're incredibly humbled by that. But at the same time, there's something called a fire marshal code that we have to abide by, <laughs> and and we'll look. Well, so I guess we'll go back to Vegas and plan for 600 people next year or whatever. Because you know what it is. Because if you're a young adult survivor, it's baby needs a new pair of testicles. <laughs> <laughs> baby needs a new pair of breasts. That's what you're going to say on stage at the Palm Lisa. <laughs> We're going to hold you to that. Okay. All right. So Sue, I, I like you. I was diagnosed with a, a, a childhood disease. Uh, I was treated in the pediatric setting as an adult, and it's an extraordinary experience to feel so incredibly out of place. Why don't you st- and Ewing sarcoma of all things? My um, my brother-in-law had Ewing sarcoma. Is oh. that named it for Patrick Ewing? Yes. Okay. Patrick Ewing. So Patrick Ewing so the sarcoma. New York, the New York Nick. Yeah. Gave Sue her cancer. Yes. All right, so you go know, ahead, they, Sue. they suck for so many reasons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead, Sue. Okay, so you want to know what it was like being treated in a pediatric ward? Well, we'd like to know, like, how you were misdiagnosed and not treated oh. age appropriately. Tell us the stuff that will piss us off. Yeah, well, I had, starting in the summer of 2004, persistent pain in my tailbone and fatigue. And I went on for about nine months with me telling my mom and telling people about it. And enough people said to me, you know, those are sort of signs of cancer. You should really see somebody. And I saw my um, GP's partner, and it was like the end of the night, 7 o'clock at night, snowing on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. He came in and was like, we got to clear these people out. There were like 10 people in the waiting room. The staff had gone home except for the doctors. 
And I thought he was just going to push me through and say, buy a new mattress or get a better chair for your office. And so I went into his office, and he said, what's, you know, what's going on? And I said, well, I have a pain in my tailbone. And he said, well, not everyone knows exactly where that is. If I touch you there, it'll be inappropriate. And I said, that's oh, exactly yeah. where it is. Nice. So he asked me about six times if I thought I was pregnant. And I <laughs> said, uh, no, many times over. And finally, uh, he asked enough questions that he figured out that it was probably not neurological and probably not muscular. So he sent me for an x-ray, which showed nothing. And then he sent me for an MRI, which showed a 17-millimeter mass in my S2 of my sacrum, which is the formal name for the tailbone. Right. Hmm. And then I made the mistake of going to doctors in upstate New York, which is where my parents live, because I thought, well, whatever this is, I'm probably going to have to move home to deal with it. So I went to a surgeon to have my my results read from the MRI because I was on vacation the week after the MRI in New York City. And he said, oh, well, you have this mass. And I said, what do we do about it? And he said, um, nothing to me. And I said, do we biopsy it? So he said, well, no, I can't biopsy it. So I said, was there anyone who can? And he referred me to a doctor at Albany Med who I waited to see for a month, the chief of neurosurgery. About a week before the appointment, they bumped me down to the newest guy in the practice, and said, you have to come in for this appointment now or you're going to have to wait another month to see the same doctor. You're not going to see the chief of neurosurgery. Mm-hmm. And I was disappointed, but I went in and saw this doctor. He was also unresponsive to my questions. Uh, when I asked, can we biopsy it, he said, no, because you'll lose your bladder your bladder and bowel functions. And I thought, well, that's terribly alarming. Who needs and, that anyway? Yeah, exactly. Who needs Overrated. It? Especially in your 20s. It's so fun to be incontinent. So um, so basically, I had enough of them at a certain point. They did a needle biopsy and found nothing. Um, so, But you're biopsying something that's 17 millimeters, so the chance of you actually hitting the right spot is yeah. pretty, Difficult. you know. Needle biopsies are, are, are challenging in, in a lot of different scenarios. But oh, right, yeah. Particularly, with, I mean, because you're getting so little. Exactly. Out, you're just getting a few cells, so. Yeah, so finally I just sent a work-wide email to the people I worked with at WNYC Radio and said, does anybody know a good back surgeon in New York City? Someone referred me to a guy who they said, if he doesn't know who to send you to, no one will. He sent me to Sloan Kettering. I saw Dr. Bolin there who said, um, well, whatever this is, it has to come out. And within two weeks I had a needle or a excisional biopsy where they debulked my spine and they knew immediately from the frozen sample that it was Ewing sarcoma took all of it out, and then I had um, seven rounds of chemo, six weeks of radiation, and they were going to do a second look-see surgery, but they decided not to based on my recovery. So, um, But this whole time I was treated in the pediatric ward, which I actually found to be extremely comforting because I was yeah. someone who, um, at the age of 23, my pediatrician told me, you have to see another doctor. Like, I can't keep seeing you. So... I found it to be, especially because the level of care you get is so different than when I would be bounced off the pediatric floor onto the adult floors when there was overcrowding. Yeah. Uh, I just found it to be that the patients or the nurses were much more on the ball. Um, Everything was, like, very clean. There were a lot of amenities. They had Krispy Kreme donuts every Monday when you got your finger stick, so that was nice. Tasty. Yeah, exactly. Nothing like incentive through sugar. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and also they, uh, the important thing was that they would give you anesthesia for things like bone marrow aspirations, which a friend of mine who had lymphoma, um, stage 4 lymphoma as a 40-something, had described a bone marrow aspiration without anesthesia to me in such horrific manner that I was terrified of having one. So to not have to be awake for it was a blessing. Wow. So, uh, so tell me this. So how did you originally with you said they didn't do a uh, a follow up? Uh, sorry, I'm, blah, 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 blah. let me back up a bit. Lisa's how, not here right mo- now, but if mo- you have a message at the yeah, beep. Exactly. <laughs> Mobilization with all of this, with this being in your tailbone. How has that left you? Um, in terms of my ability to walk and such. Yeah, and move and run and yeah, anything. I actually um, nothing was impacted. I do have a little bit of bowel functionality that is not fully recovered. Yeah. Um, but that seems to be more from the radiation than the surgery. Yeah. Um, but I didn't lose the ability to walk. I didn't have any, you know, physical therapy for my gait or anything like that. Um, my surgeon was very adept, and he said to me very calmly before the surgery, you know, your S2 does have some motor function, and there's a chance that you could lose some functionality, but I don't believe that's going to happen. And he said this in a very nice Irish brogue, which didn't hurt. So, <laughs> um, then uh, when I woke up from my surgery, he made sure I was awake, and then he said, oh, it's malignant. And I just thought, like, you're so charming, and I love your tie. So thank you for diagnosing me. Where are my lucky charms? Yeah, we, we refer to him as my champagne leprechaun. There you go. Yes. Well, wow, so this is all six years ago. Yes, six years ago. And you haven't, so your treatment lasted for how long, approximately? Uh, from June of 2005 to January of 2006. Okay. And since then, what has life been like for you? Um, it's been a mixed bag. I had a terrible job at the time that I got sick, and I really struggled with what am I going to do? I need the insurance, and I need the you know the income. Well, so you said you mentioned that you were at WNYC, right? I was, which is a wonderful place. But yeah. I had the only bad apple in the station was my manager, and my book uh-huh. is very much about having a terrible job. The book is basically the Devil Wears Prada meets House at the kids' table. What did you What so, did you do at uh, What did you do? And NYC is obviously is, is, public, is public radio uh, yes, here in New York. Radio. So what did, aspect of the station were you involved in? I did something called listener services, which is basically the dumping department where any call that comes into the station, whether it's what book was on Leonard Lopate today, or yeah. we don't like your Middle East coverage. Or I didn't get my order. You had to deal crap from the listeners that nobody else she wanted to handle. She was a bitching post. Yeah, yeah. It was right. basically a combination of desk set and just being like a whipping boy. Nice. Yeah. So that's what I did there, and I um, they actually I told them it was going to be a year before I could come back to work, and they held my job, which was actually really honorable of them. They only had to hold it twelve weeks. They held it about a little under a year for me, that's and in cool. April of two thousand six, a couple months after I finished chemo, they said. Um, we need you to commit to a return date. And I said, well, I'm kind of recovering day by day, and I don't really know if I can do that. And at that point, they sort of gave me an ultimatum and said, you know, we can't uh, hold the job open any longer. Meanwhile, I knew everyone who worked there, and of the three people who worked there, two of them had a foot out the door um, that the manager knew about. So I thought it was odd that they were also going to get rid of me when they probably needed to have somebody in reserve to come back and pick up some of the slack. So um, so what happened? So then you, when did you end up? Because clearly you're in Boston now. Yes. So, so when I ended did that up, job end? That job ended April of 2006, and then I ended up 
uh, sort of unemployed and on the dole until about November of 2006 when I started working as a researcher for this author, Andrew Solomon, who writes about depression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for him until April of 2009 and then moved to Boston in May of 2009 to go to grad school for library science, which I just finished this past January. Wow. What made yeah. you decide to do that? She's in um, love with Dewey Decimal. I'm yeah. in love with Dewey Decimal, yes. And I well, unfortunately... I didn't love library school. I thought of going because I liked researching so much, and I thought this would be a good – I knew a few people who were librarians and really liked their jobs. Um, But I did archiving, which it turns out I hate, and every semester I thought I should really become a general librarian and drop this concentration, and I didn't listen to my gut. And so I just graduated with an archiving degree, and I now work at Mass General (laughs) in uh, in the radiology research department as an admin assistant. Uh Aha. You just can't escape the cancer world, can you? No, but it's great health coverage, so yes. you, well, know, you can't knock it. That's worth a lot. Yes. Sue, do you know about the Young Adult Conference coming up this Saturday? Yes, my dad's going to be in town, so I'm not actually attending. Oh, okay. There's going to be some stupid cancer goodness going on there. Yes, I did hear about that on the show last week. Very cool, very cool. Um, yeah. All right, well, I mean, again, I, I, I would just thank you for your testimony about the summit i mean we very rarely hear from people who we knew five years ago that have seen sort of things really grow uh for the, for the question of what, what's outside the name? of everybody's tumors outside oh lisa gets one of these I, for I, that one yeah well i'm really i'm 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 pissed i'm pissed for sue i'm going back i'm, I'm thinking about that you know being in albany and those doctors who won't even do a um a biopsy Lisa, I got Robitussin for brain cancer. I understand that. By we, an have upstate sto- New York we, ha- we have stories over and over and over again. I mean, I wasn't looked at for, you know, another year also. I mean, it's just, but it never doesn't get annoying. <laughs> it's always, <laughs> it's always annoying. It's like quadruple negative right there. <laughs> exactly. It deserves a quadruple negative. It never doesn't ever not get annoying. <laughs> exactly. So what's what's the name of your book? Oh, it's called, let me think about this. It's called No Clowns, Please. My year as a pediatric, or as a my year as a twenty-something pediatric patient. I just changed the title because publishing experts told me cancer memoirs don't sell. So if you call it my childish cancer, you'll never find a publisher. Right. Yeah. That's no what, clowns, please. I like that. Yes, it's in reference to the clown doctors at Sloan Kettering in the Peds unit, who are very solicitous and they get all Patch Adams on you. I was going to say it's a Patch Adams <laughs> festival. Yeah. yeah, it's just unfortunate, and uh, so there's a few references to that in the book. And that's the uh, nature of the title. Well, when I when I tell my story, I, mean, I was 21 and I was treated in pediatrics, and I remember the very first time I went to go see the neurologist, and there were literally squeaky ducks on the floor. Right. The carpet was made of like zoo animals. Yes. There were clouds on the ceiling, painted on the walls, and everything like that. And it was it was an amazing environment. Obviously, I'm glad that like kids don't have to experience an emotionless white walled room when they're getting triaged with their parents. But it was incredibly awkward. I mean, I guess the question is, Sue, for, for, for argument's sake, would you have preferred to have been treated in a room with octogenarians or with kids? No, definitely with kids. And the thing is, the Sloan Pediatric Unit is very much geared towards the teenagers, interestingly enough. So, I mean, they have, like, a playroom for the little kids, but they also have, like, a separate... I kept getting invited to join the teen songwriting group because everybody thought I was 15. Um, so they had sort of like separate facilities for the teens. 
like with computers and rock band and there were a lot of like DVDs of movies that were out in theaters now because you couldn't go to the movies because you'd get sick from all the germs. Right. Um, and I just generally thought, you know, especially because I did spend some time with the geriatric population, and the nurses were just so burnt out and tuned out in those departments that I thought, you know, I don't know what keeps the peds nurses going because you see, you know, these little kids dying sometimes, and it can't be easy. But the, it's just such a, like, up-with-people sort of atmosphere right. that um, – I used to say it was like going to camp. Like, I wouldn't want to have chemo if I didn't have to. But I made very good friends with my nurse, Terry, who I still see when I go back periodically. And when I left there, I felt like I was leaving summer camp because I had sort of bonded with a lot of children and with my caretakers and even with, like, the janitorial staff and the nurses' aides. Um, So for me, it was I would definitely prefer a pediatric environment. Well, there you go. All right. Well, you've been a terrific guest, Sue. Thank you Thank for you. sharing your story. Uh, Matt's talked a lot about you, and I'm thrilled that you uh, could come on the show tonight. And, uh, again, we're thrilled that you are uh, have been with us to see the uh, the progress and our big uh, OMG summit coming up in Vegas. And I'm sorry it took five years to get you on the show. Oh, that's I hope okay. I've made it up to you. Yes, you have. Okay. I don't want right. to be on your bad side. No, of course not. <laughs> All right, Sue Campa, thank you so right, much for Sue, joining thank us you. from Boston. Take okay. care of yourself. We'll see you soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, it is now time for the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Oh, we got a lot of news tonight. Yes, we do. During this part of the Stupid Cancer Show, we announce to our listeners a whole bunch of newsworthy programs, events, and services that we do not want you missing out on. They're all free, and they're all just for young adults with cancer. Things like conferences, happy hours, retreats, kayaking, mountain climbing trips, finance webinars, college scholarships, bar curls, concerts, tweet-ups, happy hours, support groups, and more. If you have something coming up that you'd like to spread the word about during this part of the show, send us an email anytime to info at stupidcancer.com. That's info. At stupidcancer.com. Only you, know, you know where to go, folks. It is event.stupidcancer.com, your one stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Stay in the loop because something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out. What do you got, MZ? All right, like I said at the top of the show, the Stupid Cancer Road Trip is in effect between now and next Wednesday. We have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour happening every night of the week until then. Tonight, D.C. Metro. Tomorrow night, Raleigh-Durham. The next night, Nashville, Tennessee. The following night, New Orleans, Austin, Dallas. And then a restful evening getting abducted by aliens in Roswell, followed by Phoenix, Orange County, and San Diego. All right. Me. Yes. Stupid Cancer Forums. Let's jump over to the forums. Stupid Cancer Forums have over 2,500 members. When you're not connecting with Kenny Kane and John Sabi on the road, go to go online onto the forums. You can chat about all kinds of different topics. This is your premier online community to connect with survivors, patients, parents, care and caregivers just like you. Visit stupidcancerforums.com. That's stupidcancerforums.com. Sign up with one click through Facebook. All right, folks, we're talking the ING New York City Marathon, the 2012 ING New York City Marathon. Yes, that marathon we have. 
Stupid Cancer. Team Stupid Cancer has five slots for the ING 2012 New York City Marathon, and we are accepting applications today. Submit your interest in joining the team to info at stupidcancer.com. We will send you more details. This is a highly prestigious race. We are very proud to have our very first ING New York City Marathon team. We just wrapped the New York City half on Sunday, and we thank our team members for being incredibly involved, raising us tons of money, and spreading the good word about stupid cancer. All right. We've been talking lots about it, but here we go again. Fifth annual OMG Cancer Summit for Young Adults. It's just a week and a half away, folks, and we are all sold out, and the waiting list is closed. But that does not stop it from being the hippest event in all of Cancerland, says yet us. This year, as more than 500 young adult survivors, caregivers, providers, and activists descend upon the Palms Casino Hotel in Las Vegas, baby needs a new pair of testicles, uh, <laughs> for three days of pure awesomeness, check out the agenda, help us promote this epic, 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 epic event. Lisa's at, not here right now. At, please leave a message on the beat, <laughs> at omg2012.org. And that is your Super Kids News. Yes, it is. Yee! Lisa needs to either up or down her Woo! So, Matt, you're running in the marathon. I take it, right? The Come IMG? on, MZ. Get in no, shape. Nah, Come on. No, maybe. We need, like, five more employees, and then I'll have enough time to actually think about eating. I'll oh, register no, you no. for you. I'll register you. Oh, yeah? yeah. You need I'll to go do ahead it. And take care of it. I have to do the half for it before to the full. 26 points. You want me to die? Don't answer that, Lisa. <laughs> Don't answer that question. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. All uh, right. All right. Well, let's, let's get to our guest. All right. Nice. We haven't had this music in a while. Do I got Emily first? Yes, ma'am. Emily Morrison, she's right here all the way live in the studio with <laughs> us. She attended Virginia Tech. She was diagnosed one year ago with astrocytoma after two months of a misdiagnosis. Um, that's a brain tumor, folks. She's going to tell us all about that. She had her 24th birthday in the hospital. That's always fun. Hospital food for your birthday. She's turning 25 now in a month. She currently works in finance for Alliance Bernstein, and she loves to travel. She's going to tell us more about her story. Out, Emily Morrison, Maddie Z. Emily Morrison. Morrison. Hi, everyone. How are you? Hello. I'm good. How are you tonight? Welcome We're to great. the Love Lounge. Oh, it's been a long time coming. <laughs> yes. I've known you, what, two weeks? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Virginia Tech. So one year ago, what happened? In February of last year, I started to have migraines, and that was kind of the misdiagnosis. Everyone said, oh, you have a migraine. Went to the ER. They gave me Reglan and some Vicodin and sent me home. Mm-hmm. I had a spinal tap. They were looking for a brain bleed. That's something that you have with no anesthesia. Lots of fun. Oh, oh my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Um, Closer to the mic. Pull it close, baby. There you go. Ah, uh, see? Oh, we'll make sure better. everybody can hear you. And we won't embarrass you too much. Don't worry. Yeah. I can only expect it. <laughs> so after I went to the ER Smart. twice with no um, real diagnosis, I found a headache clinic, and they finally, they'd done a CT, saw nothing, and they finally did an MRI where they found an inoperable brain tumor two and a half inches into my head. And the next, You're going to do it, do it right. The yeah. next <laughs> day I was admitted they said this is really rare. Uh, we really don't see this very often, especially in people your age, especially where it's located in the middle of my brain and diffused. Hmm. So um, the reason I was having the headaches was it was blocking where your spinal fluid drains. Hmm. And 
So they ended up going in and doing several surgeries to kind of make a new hole so the spinal fluid could drain. And I was really lucky. I had an experience where my fabulous neurosurgeon at Columbia Presbyterian actually brought in a pediatric neurosurgeon to assist him. And really, I benefited from having a pediatric surgeon there also. So Because what? Because there was another surgeon or because what, specifically pediatric? Because Pediatric why? surgeons are used to working in smaller spaces, uh-huh. and my brain was so swollen from all the pressure that the two of them working together were able to actually make a new hole as opposed to putting in a shunt. I see. Yeah. They're not used to working in smaller ORs. They're working in, <laughs> working in smaller. They do their surgery in a closet. Yes. They're used to working in smaller spaces. Exactly. Your textile yeah. is at work. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then I did six weeks of radiation, and I'm on month seven of chemo tonight. So. Month, month seven of chemo tonight. Yeah, so I do five days on and then 23 days off. So, chemo. so you came from chemo before the show? No, no. tonight. Oh, after the show. After the show, I do chemo. Parte. And I work full time. Good for you. Shout out to my coworkers. No, Emily. Emily is a, a machine. I was I was really taken with her. Uh, we met um, in person for the first time two weeks ago, mm-hmm. and then we had a bite afterwards. And her, her story is amazing. But she's you know we talk about how cancer matures you. Yeah. You know you're not. Uh, what are you? Twenty six now. You'll be twenty. You'll be twenty five no, next week. No, she's turning twenty five right. in a month. Right. You'll be twenty fifteenth tax day. Tax, tax day. Right. Mm-hmm. Just like find me a twenty five year old. You yeah, know, with this level of like life appreciation, you know, like it's just like, do you have to really go through a chronic catastrophic disease to really realize this? I think the answer is yes. I, you know, Matthew, we've talked a lot, and I've told you about I've everything. I've been, I've been listening though. So. Oh well, no, I mean at dinner <laughs> oh, about okay. everything else. He I still wasn't listening. Last year, <laughs> right. my grandma passed away. Two weeks later, my grandpa passed away, and then I was diagnosed the next month, and then my aunt unexpectedly passed away over the summer. So it was like boom, boom, Jeez. boom, and then our basement flooded 18 inches during whatever that. That's no storm. That was the Brooklyn oh. Katrina. No, the oh, the hurricane. But yeah. I don't remember the name of it. Was but that Irene? Irene. Uh-huh. I had brain radiation. So. Yeah. Well, why would you? Yeah. Yeah. It was Irene. Um, so you guys have been through a lot. So we had a really rough year. And to top it all off, my um, cousin was in Afghanistan when his mom died, and so they had to bring him back. Mm. And so he came back to finding out his grandma had passed away, his mom had passed away, and his only female cousin had an inoperable brain tumor. Eesh. So we just had a... Right, because they can't tell the troops they while they're in the field. Mm-hmm. They just have to say you're coming home, and then they tell you when you get home. Yeah. Well, they won't. So when my grandma passed away, we couldn't tell him that. When I got sick, we just told him I was having headaches. Yeah. It wasn't until his mom passed away that that was enough to pull him to out. To pull him out, right. Yeah. So you guys are the brain tumor ex- ex- experts here. Jesus, I'm having a rough night with the pronunciation. Um, astrocytoma. Mm. So what, I mean, you describe that it's in the middle of your brain, but what is what is that exactly? Oh. You know? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> okay. Now you're testing my science skills here. Yes. So you have different types of cells. You have glial cells, right. astrocytes, all mm-hmm. of these different cells. And an astrocytoma is one of the types of tumors. In the brain, they never say, oh, you're stage four. Um, they don't grade cancer that way. There are, for the uh, astrocytoma tumors, there are four types, pediatric, low-grade, which is very slow-growing, uh, then it's anaplastic astrocytoma, and then finally it's a GBM, a 
Globa- yeah. Glioblastoma. Yeah, glioblastoma. Exactly. Yeah. Wait, where does pilocytic come in? Is that I think that's the one below low grade. That's the pediatric. Right, yeah. pilocytic, right. That's what they thought I had yeah. until the surgery, and they're like, oops. Wait, maybe it's not pediatric. Maybe it's just pilocytic, and I've just been reading it wrong all this time. I think it's pilocytic. Well, whoops. <laughs> so you were, so you're, you said it says in your bio that you're a mix of grade two and three. Mm-hmm. So that's below the the glioblastoma, right? Yes. Yeah. So. They weren't able to take a huge biopsy because of where it is, which is something you were talking about before with the needle biopsy and all that. Right. When you get a sample, is the sample representative of the whole or is it not? Yeah. And so the sample they have for me is mostly low grade. There's a little bit that's a little higher. Right. Um, so they can't really classify. They yeah. call, They actually call my tumor a gliomatosis, which means it's glial cells that are diffused in the brain. But it's, it's a bit a, of a gumbo. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's, it's really rare. So, and so I don't qualify for a lot of clinical trials and things right. like that because it's so unique. Yeah. So has it affected you in any other way? I mean, you had the headaches, but physically, I mean, did you have, did you have anything with seizures nope. or anything with your movements of your arms or... Nothing. You had three surgeries, though, right? I had three brain surgeries over the course of three and a half weeks. But you look great. Oh, you know, that's what they all say. Wait, where's my cancer card? Can I play it? Yes, exactly. So. Wow. So that's the young adult story, misdiagnosed. I love the fact that you had a CT scan and they didn't see the giant thing in your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's quality radiology right there. I went to the ER twice, and both times they gave me Reglan for the nausea Mm -hmm. and sent me home. This was in Albany, right? No. (laughs) (laughs) It was was actually in New York City. I will not mention the hospital name. We'll we'll shake it out of you later. Uh, You're too kind. But now you work for the National, you volunteer for the National Brain Tumor Society. Tell us about that organization. So the National Brain Tumor Society, I actually started volunteering for them from my hospital bed in between surgeries two and three on Easter Sunday. Jeez. And I found out they were having the first annual um, brain tumor awareness walk in New York last June. She didn't even wait to get out of her bed. Right. She's like in between surgeries. She's already like... Got the IV you know, poles in yeah, tow. Right. Exactly. Oh, they... When I got out of the hospital, my dad used to walk with me every night up and down the driveway, and then we'd go a little further because I hadn't walked in weeks. Right. Yeah. Yep, and yep, yep. it's just a mess. And I had to be able to, I wanted to be able to walk the three miles. on. And so I got out at the end of April, and the walk was middle of June. So I basically had a month and a half to, quote, unquote, train. Um, so I started fundraising on Easter Sunday, and the first walk was the day before Father's Day last year, which was really great. I got to speak and paid a little tribute to my dad and my mom, who were so helpful to me. And now I'm fundraising for them again. And the second annual yes, you are. walk is on June 16th on Governor's Island. Yep. It's going to be so much fun. Nice. Now that they've detoxified the island. Yeah, that's here in New York, by the way. Governor's Island is like this former hellhole of a lost little mini it's like if like it was like it's its own Chernobyl without the nuclear plant. <laughs> but now it's so beautiful because the walk right. around it's like by the Statue of Liberty. No, they cleaned it up. They like urbanized it, yeah. which is yeah. great. Yeah. So and then you work for what's Alliance Bernstein? It's a finance company and I was really fortunate. They were so supportive. They're still so supportive of me. Brad, I had asked you like you know young adults get sick, how do you tell your employers? What do they do with you? They can't discriminate, but you can lose your job and then your benefits and all that stuff. But your experience was decidedly anomalous for the right. young adult story. 
Right. I had full support of management. Um, I had people come visit me in the hospital. Senior management would come to my hospital. And this isn't a small company. It's several thousand people. And I was really supported. And even now, um, I'll probably go in late to work tomorrow because of chemo. I'll probably leave early one night. Um, And I just have full support from them, which has been so, so great. Right, and again, we like success stories like that. We we should encourage all employers to actually treat their employees this way. Yeah. Yeah, right. and because of it, it makes you a more loyal employee because I feel like I have some sort of stake in the company. Sure. I right. fit in with the people, and right. I want to give back and treat clients better. They've got your back. You want to have their back. Exactly. So we're going to keep you on the show I mean, you're obviously physically here, but we. Have to, I want to Thanks, segue. Matthew. I want to segue into our next two guests by asking you a pointed question, which is the irony of tonight's show is about adherence and compliance, which is fancy terms for like remembering to take your pills, mm. what what people can do to be told to remember to take them, um, and, and how do you adhere to the schedule to ensure your optimum health uh, based on your prescriptions, and and how does that translate into long term outcomes? You are clearly on the ball with taking this medicine. It, I, I said at a conference, and we'll talk about the conference, that I'm the most adherent and compliant patient out there because I'm scared to death to miss taking my medications. Mm. How do you feel about that, and what's your regimen? Well, it's interesting that you ask the night I'm starting the seventh round because there is no evidence that after six rounds of Timidor, you gain benefit by staying on the drug. Right especially if you're an astrocytoma 2-3. A guest you had a few weeks ago had an anaplastic astrocytoma, and so for her, they prescribed 12 months. But for me, they kind of don't know what to do. So for the last week and a half, we've been having this debate, do I continue with treatment? Do I, you know, continue doing five days on, 23 days off? And so I think you have to figure out what works for you. Um, when I was home over the summer, I actually made spreadsheets. I know this doesn't surprise you at all. <laughs> I made, she works in finance. I yes. made spreadsheets, and they were all multicolored and color-coded and morning, night. Now I'm much worse about it, um, but I also have much, many less pills to take. Um, but I think you have to figure out what works for you. Right. All right, well, with that, let's segue in. We'll bring in our two guests here, and let's cue up some music. All right, in studio here, Alex Simon is the senior producer of, with the events division of Frost and Sullivan. In his role, he works to develop the content and the speaker faculty for Frost and Sullivan's interactive events and executive mind exchanges across the industry. Then Dr. Dirk Schroeder is a professor of global health at Emory University. He is also the executive vice president and co-founder of Hola Doctor Incorporated, an online community that produces culturally relevant health information for Hispanics and other underserved populations. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Alex Simon and Dr. Dirk Schroeder. Gentlemen, welcome both. Thank Hello. You. Dirk, a, a special thank you for filling in at the last minute. We really appreciate it. And um, I, I was really impressed with the feedback I got on your presentation at the conference last week. Sure, I'm glad to do it. So let's let's just hop right to it here, Alex. Um, let's start with you. Um, tell us about uh, Frost and Sullivan. Uh, what do you guys primarily focus on? And this major conference that I spoke at uh, two weeks ago. Okay, the one thing I will start off. My only correction I'll make is we refer to it as the Congress. The Congress, which not is an the easy conference. Mistake, yes, okay. easy mistake to make. Uh, so Frost and Sullivan is a it's a 
global growth partnership company, um, and it's working with Fortune 1000 companies for the most part, helping them grow their business. So it's a growth-focused consulting uh, professional services company and life science. Life sciences is, is an industry we were very heavily involved in. Right. Am I close enough? Yeah. No, you're good. It may be a little closer, but that's okay. okay. And uh, uh, yeah, and and your, your the Congress last week was right. And what happened was uh, our customers and our, our our clients told us a few years ago about the challenge of getting patients to adhere to their medications, and that's sort of across major diseases such as cancer, or it could be chronic uh, obesity, uh, high blood pressure, hypertension, right. uh, diabetes, anything like that. Uh, the difficulty and the challenges in that area, and asked us to put together a forum for them to hear the best practices, industry leaders, uh, and talking about opportunities to learn from one another. So this is the seventh year that we've done this. Uh, we've primarily done in the East Coast and, and mostly in the Philadelphia area. And uh, what we do is we put together about 50 people. It's it's a it's an intimate kind of an interactive fun. It's not a it's not a stuffy uh, not a stuffy environment. And it's, it, mostly uh, the the audience is, is executives from pharma companies who right. are uh, focused on adherence issues. So what we're all about with doing this and have been uh, is helping uncover innovative ideas and trying to trying to work together and find new approaches to the crisis of adherence across diseases. Right, and very well said. And I will attest that your conference was not stuffy in any way. Although Congress, I did, Congress, Congress, wasn't a conference. your Congress, there you go. your 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 House of Representatives was not stuffy. Although I did wear a suit. You, yeah, well, it's funny. We had the the sort of the post mortem meeting today, and one of the the other is called a post mortem meeting. <laughs> I'm calling it a post mortem. <laughs> uh, and one of the items on the agenda was addressing the genes issue, which you and Kenny know very yes. very well. Yes, yes. J e a n s, not G e n e s. Yeah, my suit was my suit was made of denim. The suit was made of denim, and this is a... Your leisure suit. My leisure it was, suit, it was, yeah. it was faux denim. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And this is an organization or a... Uh, the Union League, it's from... goes back to when Lincoln was president, and there's actually one in New York, too. Uh, apparently, they, they frown upon denim. Because it was held at the Union League? Yes. This yeah. was held at the Union League, and they frown upon denim. And I found out that... that um, team Stupid Cancer were not the only ones who violated this. Uh, Thank God. Sacred, Yes, there were there were people. Sacred dress code. Yeah. We didn't feel entirely alienated from the. Usually, we are the only people that violate things. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew, hey will now. you be seeing the denim suit in Vegas? Oh my God! I, it was like it's like when I went to high school. Like you wear the, the denim button-down shirt with the matching wash denim jeans. That that horrible horrible eighties look that you can't. Thank God, no Burn one the posted photos. on Facebook yet. Okay. Um, all right, so Dr. Schroeder, hi, welcome aboard. <laughs> you were one of the speakers on. at the uh, at the Congress last week. Uh, I, yeah. I find your work to be extraordinary because you know we look at you know uh, entire we are an underserved community. We focus on young adults with cancer, but then you find the disparity groups like the Hispanic community. Um, why don't you tell us about your, your history, uh, getting involved with healthcare, your professorship at Emory, and uh, what uh, Ola Doctor is all about? Sure. Yeah. Thanks so much. Um, just a little bit of background. I am, uh, as, as you say, I'm a professor at Emory in, on the, in the School of Public Health. But prior to that, uh, I actually lived internationally. I lived in Indonesia for about five years, lived in uh, Guatemala for about three years. So did a lot of multicultural and international health uh, in the countries of origin, so to speak. 
joined the faculty, came to Atlanta and joined the faculty at Emory, um, and uh, spent about six or seven years there um, doing what academics do, uh, doing research and, and writing papers, and, and to be honest, uh, enjoyed that, but in 1999 uh, felt a, a need to start developing solutions, not just documenting the problem. So I co-founded with a business partner um, at the time. We are called Dr. Tango. Uh, you may find that on the Internet. Um, we recently changed our name to Ola Doctor. And for the past 12 years, we've been developing health information for Hispanics and other multicultural, multilingual groups um, uh, that's culturally appropriate, uh, engages them around their health conditions, and, uh, and moves them to, uh, to, to improved health. And uh, one of the ways we do that actually is through an exclusive partnership with Univision Interactive Media. Univision, of course, is the big Spanish media company. Right. So all of the health information uh, under Salud, which means health, and also their very fast-growing mobile platform is content that we develop and uh, and work with them to develop. So so that's exciting. We've essentially got a window to uh, nearly all Spanish-dominant uh, uh, Hispanics in the United States, which is about 25 million, so there's a lot of people. And I just want to point out for our listeners, like you, what you don't do is you don't just translate a website into Spanish. <laughs> it's way more in, intensely important and, and, and complex than that because – of, like you said, the cultural sensitivities. Why don't you talk about uh, like how that process actually happens? Sure, sure. Yeah, that's a very important point. Um, the first of all, let me state that that offering health information in, in Spanish is, is actually better than than not. So um, there's a lot of health, great health information out there that is essentially very inaccessible for Spanish dominant or individuals with limited English proficiency. Um, this is complex stuff. I mean, this is healthcare. This is uh, these are specialized terms. So even somebody who's who's quite fluent is, is going to be much more comfortable uh, under reading it and, and 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 hearing about it in their own language. So that said, we have uh, really worked hard to develop a, a process. We call this cultural adaptation for health. And, and there's a free white paper on our website that's available to anybody to to download. Um, and we've used this. Uh, we we look at not just the language, but most importantly, we look at things like belief systems. So what are the, uh, what are the barriers to uh, getting uh, cancer screening, for example? I'm doing a large project with, with WellPoint right now. Uh, we've done a national survey on breast cancer screening, and we're really trying to understand what, why uh, the breast cancer screening rates are lower among Hispanic Latina women um, and, 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 uh, and, and trying to overcome those. So we're looking at those belief systems, and we're also looking at ways to engage Hispanics and other multicultural groups um, with things that really resonate with them. These can be traditional beliefs. They can be an emphasis on the family, and they can be addressing things that uh, are really important in, in an area like, like cancer. Um, fatalism is, is uh, a higher, has a higher degree of uh, people are people are essentially if they if they think they have cancer or. or uh, Think they may have cancer. They they sort of um, don't think they can survive it. They they're sort of they may give up. Um, and this is pretty well documented. And, and addressing that um, in a way to get people motivated to take care of themselves is a lot of the work that we do. That's sort of a fascinating uh, facet uh, of this to me is that in some cultures, Hispanics and and I'm sure many others. Um, you know, I know, for instance, in in Africa, you know, cancer is you can be completely shut out from your family. You're, it's like you're 
some sort of an outcast. People don't want to go near you. People think they can you're bad luck. Well, it's anathema. Can, it, totally. Right. They can catch it or whatever it is. Um, and so you're saying that you find it, is it that uh, this fatalism? I mean, is it religion that sort of comes into play, where some people think like, well, if it's God, God's will, this is meant to be, and that sort of affects their compliance with their taking their drugs, taking their pills, or even getting they, screened. Or even getting screened, exactly. Um, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, and, is that? And, and go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you, you, yeah, you go. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we're not in the same same room, obviously. Um, the uh, yeah, fatalism is is a component of, and I don't want to I don't want to overemphasize for your listeners and others uh, the importance of fatalism. This is one component of, of lower screening and, um, and 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 worse adherence to medications. The other thing that we've, uh, the other factor we found pretty consistently, is that um, Hispanic, Latinas, and of course these are generalizations, um, often have uh, a, um, essentially an understanding, uh, or less of an understanding of the severity of, of conditions, um, and and the consequences of not taking care of, of something in a timely manner. Uh, we've done a lot of work, for example, around diabetes. And uh, and we've done um, we, we've actually talked with uh, Hispanics who have diabetes and, and and found some through a process we call positive deviance that uh, are actually taking really good care of themselves. Uh, this was a, a really large project we did in Texas, and we talked to them and we said, you know, why are you taking care of yourself and, and the and the people that are working next to you um, in this large employer or not? And they said uh, pretty consistently. Um, that they started taking care of themselves when they understood uh, the importance of, um, of this condition. And if they don't, there could be really dire consequences in the case of diabetes, amputations, and blindness. Um, and, and there's a sense then that, um, that some of these chronic conditions and, and even things like, like screening um, are, not, uh, are not as serious. They, they don't take them quite as seriously as, as other ethnic groups. Um, so there's a, an important area of, of education and, and helping them understand that, uh, A, you do have control, that you can um, change the course of, of, of disease in your life, as, as you and your listeners have done, and, uh, and, and also that, uh, that if uncontrolled or, or not doing anything, um, you can uh, you really have some bad consequences. And, Dr. Schroeder, you know, I was talking once to a uh, a surgeon, a breast surgeon at uh, Sloan Kettering here in New York who also went, I was talking to her about a piece that I wrote about how uh, so many women, it's only like 16 or 17 percent of all women with breast cancer are told about their reconstructive options. And, and clearly, um, and this is also largely affects uh, minorities who are diagnosed with breast cancer. And one of the things that she was saying to me was, that through her research, they were also showing uh, tremendous distrust of the medical system by those in the Hispanic and African-American communities. Do you find that as well? Yes, we do. We do see that. I think that's one area. There's a lot of uh, similarities between uh, Hispanic and African-American communities. Um, in this case, I think there is a, a higher distrust by African-Americans generally, um, there's uh, for less what are called less acculturated Hispanics, those that are more uh, Spanish dominant, um, maybe more recent immigrants. They actually um, often uh, sort of revere um, the, the, the physician. Uh, they've, they've got a term of respeto, 
So they respect authority and um, and and uh, often will take what the physician is is recommending um, and and do that. Um, but uh, but lots of lots of physicians and surgeons don't utilize that as as much as they could in in, uh, in helping Hispanics essentially take better care of themselves. I think the other really important aspect or, or component of, of healthcare with Hispanics is the importance of the family, and, and everybody sort of understands this at some level. It's a very social um, group. Um, sort of all health decisions are made um, collaboratively, um, and especially when we're talking about women, they, they they really are sort of there for their 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 husband and children, and and there's a phenomenon that that creeps up often in, in the literature on cancer. Uh, regarding women, which is um, essentially they, do, they take care of everybody um, but themselves. They're sort of last in line of, of making appointments and, and taking care of themselves and making time for themselves and, and doing those things. So there's a, a number of initiatives, including I think one by the American Cancer Society, that is really trying to get uh, women especially to make themselves a priority and, and make the time to, to get their screenings and, and to take care of themselves. Well, I, w- I want to bring it back to Alex now because obviously you were a speaker at the Congress, and you know I I, I know that there were a lot of uh, a lot of people at the Congress. How many people were there, Alex? A couple I'm hundred. I'm gonna say no, 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 no. Uh, I'm gonna say in the range of total people in the room about seventy. All right. So when you prepare a Congress like this, what is your goal for the attendees to get by learning about Dr. Schroeder's work, and you know? Like, like we, we, it's easy to play the blame game and say, you know, it's it's their fault and not, you know. But like, what he's doing is he's really trying to understand their attitudinals, their behavior, what right. what what they respond to that isn't maybe fear based or maybe it is spiritual or maybe it's just it is cultural. Right. So when you plan these congresses, how do you choose the types of people that you want to speak there, and what's the end goal that you'd like the recipients to take away? I think the goals, and you know. I come from this with a uh, with one year. You know, this was my first year actually working on this program. Uh, but I think what we're trying to do is kind of evolve the goals year to year. Uh, and one of the reasons why we keep it the size that we do is because it's a very focused set of people who professionally are going to be interested in these types of issues. So in 2012, the issues we we wanted, you know, sort of a uh, a speaker faculty that represented. Uh, like, like like you did beautifully, advocacy organizations. We also had David Williams from Patients Like Me. Right. We also had people who are uh, like Dirk representing a specific sort of demographic group. And then we also had people who work closely with uh, large-scale employers, which is another big part of it. So, I mean, I would say over over seven years, and this is this is uh, just a guess on my part. It's evolved to be much more about communication, about patient empowerment, with the evolution of social media. Uh, that certain uh, patients are much more proactive uh, about their conditions, uh, whereas some are being left in the dust a, a bit. So figuring that out, uh, that is a problem that faces both the healthcare life sciences community and the uh, the patient populations, uh, again, across diseases. All right, so one quick question for both of you, then James has a question. One of the presenters you had, I forget, I forget his name, but he was from that, that organization. They're global. They have the incentivized health program for larger um, larger uh, uh, corporations. McKesson. No, no, it was um, 
you, you can adopt this uh, patient wellness contest type of situation. They earn okay, points. Yep. yep. Um, I, I forget the name. Oh, of uh, Vitality. Vitality Group. Group. Yes. yes. Uh, I was really impressed by their mm-hmm. their business model, and I'm just curious to know if um, if either of you have seen in the industry that that type of patient incentive actually works, and if you drill down into it, do you really have to build cultural sensitivities into that? It's not a one size fits all for employees. I'm gonna pass that. <laughs> okay. Well, right. One, all right, Derek. Right pass the bar. Yeah, yeah, um, that's a great, great question. In fact, um, we have worked. We, we worked with a, a very large employer, yeah, with a supermarket employer in um, in, in Texas, and uh, they have. And we've worked with a number of others, but they're the ones that come to mind. Um, incentives do work. First of all, let me just sort of cut to the cut to the chase. Um, incentives work. Uh, what what lots of folks are using them for, uh, for example, is uh, getting getting employees or, or health plan members to complete a, a health risk assessment, sort of a critical first step in understanding what their what their needs are and, and what services and programs the employer, the health plan um, should provide. Um, so they're, they're quite effective with that. It takes quite a significant um, incentive, though. These can be in the hundreds of, hundreds of dollars of less deductible or, or some sort of incentive like that. Um, where we were brought in, actually, is people did that, but then – they were offered uh, participation in, in chronic disease, chronic care management programs, and people uh, essentially weren't weren't staying in those programs. They were maybe signing up, but then they were dropping out. And this is where we really started to identify the importance of uh, of relevant, culturally appropriate messaging, um, delivery of the message, um, how the messages are delivered. For example, in, in the Hispanic community, um, mobile health messaging has become a, a tremendous uh, of tremendous importance. We just uh, uh, put out a, a white paper on that as well, which is free and freely available. Um, uh, 25%... I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what's, what's an example of mobile health messaging? Medication adherence, for example, mm-hmm. is, is becoming a, an important part of uh, use of mobile. So, so people... Uh, signing up to uh, get reminders. People, um, you know, many of your your listeners, I'm sure, are on, on quite complex regimens um, or need real refills for this and that. Uh, so we work with a large company, uh, 3C Interactive, that does all the messaging for Walgreens, for example. I think they send out something like 100 million messages a month or some huge number. So these are simple, uh, you know, simple uses of the fact that everybody's got a cell phone in their pocket and uh, they can, you know, either be unidirectional, just quick reminders, or they can be bidirectional, um, where with a few pushes of a text, um, information is, is sent back and forth. So that's that's an area that's uh, got tremendous potential. Um, Pew did a study about, um, I think, about nine months ago and found that 25% of Hispanics have, have used their cell phone, used their mobile device to look up health information um, compared to just 15% of non-Hispanic whites. So it's, uh, it's a very important part of, of how they're getting their information, as well as social media, which has come up tonight. And uh, I really commend commend you and your, your organization for really being, I mean, you know this, but really being on the forefront. I've referred uh, a number of people already to your uh, to your organization and site. It's really it's really great how you're how you're pointed all together. So kudos to you for that. Uh, so, well, Dr. Schroeder, this is James. I have a question for you. So, in the African American community, the Tuskegee trials are 
very damaging to the, that population's trust of the medical community. Is there something similar for the Hispanic and Latino populations that are always gone back to as this is the reason that perhaps there might be some distrust? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, nothing quite as similar. I would say the uh, the um, sort of area that's of, of similar uh, concern, I suppose, is that um, is the immigration issue, and you know that there's a percentage of the, the Hispanic Latinas that are undocumented. That's decreasing actually uh, pretty rapidly over time. But uh, but that traditionally has been an area um, of concern um, in terms of trust. So uh, we counsel our, our clients to uh, you know just be be aware of that and, and considerate of it. Um, and in, in terms of trust, I would say that, uh, you know, again, when we're talking about uh, cultural competency, there's a whole area of healthcare now that's called culturally competent care um, that's re- really receiving a lot of uh, attention and, and it's really progressed a lot. Um, so the trust comes more from Hispanics maybe not feeling like they're understood and some of these concerns and traditional beliefs that they have are, um, are discounted. There's, there's a wide use of traditional or uh, complementary um, herbs and teas and things like that that are not necessarily bad, most of them, but uh, but doctors, Western medically trained doctors will, you know, dismiss. sort of, uh, yeah, dismiss them and criticize uh, for, for no good reason except they don't understand them. Right. So there's, there's been some good advance in, under, in understanding that there's, there's sort of different ways of managing health and disease, um, which are equally valid in, in a lot of ways. So, Alex, uh, you know, we, we we mentioned this before, but the idea of is the system broken? Your conference brought together an incredible array of leaders to to hear voices, you know, um, like like Dr. Schroeder's and and the Vitality Group and and our organization. You know, is are you seeing like a more unified uh, sort of attempt to understand? patient compliance from a global issue, and, and do you have any numbers or stats for us, or either of you, on how much money is lost each year, how many lives are lost each year by what could be what seems like a, an easily improvable uh, system? Well, we were dealing with uh, different sort of di- different classifications and different disease groups in the Congress. So, uh, you know, we had people who were talking about Lou Gehrig's disease. We had people like yourself who were talking about cancer. And then we had people uh, who were talking about a lot of different chronic uh, issues. So, you know, we didn't really have necessarily, I don't think there was a unified kind of number that anybody came up with of lives lost due due to noncompliance or lack of proper adherence. I think in the initial feedback uh we came away uh it was is very positive and determined to continue the conversation uh throughout the co- community and and just so i think the way that it concluded i think you were the one of the final presenters of the day uh Brian Dolan comes to mind he's the editor of Mobile Health News or Mobile Moby Health News uh also in Boston and you know, he was sort of kind of ended ended the show with a lot of really interesting gadgets and apps that just kind of blow the mind that people can sort of individually use to, you know, really study themselves in ways that they couldn't study their bodies before. Um, and, you know, through, through uh, you know, 
through these apps and through technology and these in these gadgets. So that's one thing that's you know I think kind of perked a lot of people in that group up. Uh, so you know the patient is becoming more aware of the you know ways to kind of control. I think the stories that we've been talking about today kind of really touches on that, where that feeling of powerlessness. You know, I think that's something that the medical community wants to really respond to because you know stories like the ones that we've been kind of going back and forth with today are, are you know kind of exactly that you know exactly what we want to what they want to attack. Let's just uh, just to clarify for listeners out there too, the issue of compliance, and maybe Dr. Schroeder wants to take this one. So we've talked about minorities, Hispanics, African Americans, in terms of age groups. Where I mean, more so when the young adults, less. I mean, how how does it sort of cut a, cut across in terms of uh, age demographics? You know, I think that's a great question, um, and and I don't think we've got a really good handle on it. Um, the you know, I was doing doing some work around the conference, and if you think about it, you know, pediatric management, of course, the parents are, are generally responsible, and there's there's quite high compliance. I think you're, the age group that you're working with, um, you probably know better than anybody. I'm not sure. I'm sure there is very good data, and that's one of the reasons you're doing the work you're doing. Um, and uh and, and as you know, as people age then you get into other issues. Um we have looked for it and, and I think that's one of the things you could add to the to the list of projects is to understand sort of the evolution of of adherence, you know, through the lifespan because it, it does really shift around and evolve. Um and there's really no conceptual models or theoretical or any kind of work that I'm I'm aware of that's uh, you know, seriously, seriously looking at that. I think the other thing that you know, as we're talking about adherence and compliance, and I, I do include things like screening, um, you know, breast cancer screening, cervical cancer screening, um, as as compliance um, right. issues. And and we do know that uh, that lives are being lost from from lack of compliance to screening, um, even though Hispanic Latinas, for example, have lower um, breast cancer rates overall. Uh, they're screened later, and and therefore their five their five year survival is I think near you know eight to ten percentage uh, points less than uh, non Hispanic whites. So so lives are definitely shortened because of that delayed uh, screening or or lack of compliance to screening recommendations. Right. We should also mention which we haven't. You are a childhood cancer survivor yourself. Me? Uh, yeah. No. Oh no! no you're I'm, not. Not. I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. No, I, I I was talking. Yeah, I was talking with Matthew earlier about a a good friend of mine, Brad Schmidt. Brad who, Schmidt. Uh, that's right. Child. I'm sorry. That's fine. He's he's a a good friend. We play racquetball three days a week, and they said he would never walk, and now unfortunately he he mostly beats me in racquetball. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> he's ranked uh, one of the top racquetball players in in, in the state. He's just uh, releasing his memoir soon. He's got a website up. Right, uh, but right. he's really an inspiration for uh, for many of your listeners, I'm sure. Well, we right. got to get him on the show, so hook us up. I will do that. And and you, I mean, to get personal, you had to let us know about this information. You had lost your wife to cancer, so this is okay. a, a, a sort of a deeply passionate cause of yours. It, it really is, and, um, and and like many of your listeners, she was over forty, but uh, but not much over forty. She uh, uh, was a physician we met at Johns Hopkins. Um, when we were in graduate school there, and uh, she was from Spain, 
Um, she went through about six to nine months of uh, very strange diagnoses, high blood pressure, facial swelling, this and that, uh, and ultimately diagnosed herself uh, with adrenal cancer um, and was one of the unlucky one in a million that, uh, for, for which that was malignant. So unfortunately lost, we lost her about three years ago. So yes, cancer is a very um, important part of my life uh, and, uh, and I certainly am very happy to be on the show and, and uh, you know, look forward to working with you and your, and your listeners um, in the future. Well, we really appreciate all the information you've brought us tonight. Uh, it's, it's been terrific having you on the show. This is an important topic. What's the website that people can go to for Ola.Doctor? Is it just that? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, sure. It's Ola.Doctor, H-O-L-A, doctor spelled out, dot com is uh, our consumer site. Um, we also have uh, a version of that within Salud, the Salud channel within Univision. And finally, for those of uh, those of your listeners that are, are um, maybe Hispanic, Latina, or Latino, um, looking for obesity and weight management, uh, uh, we have a, another program called Medieta.com. Um, and so this is again very culturally appropriate, relevant. We've done randomized trials of that, which showed that a culturally appropriate program led to twice as much weight loss as just a translated version. So this is this really has significant health outcomes. Um, beyond translation. Well, we like when there's tangible progress. I can tell you that. Our our age group has been very underserved, so when we can give them tangible evidence that here's stuff that really works and really happens and it's not, you know, this ethereal rhetoric, that's congratulations to you on doing such great work. Well, thank you very much. Well, we are out of time, but I really wanted to just talk about it. Like, we've never done an episode ever about taking no. your pills, and, and, yeah. and I would be really excited to, to sort of, on a, maybe a side job, understand if there's a, a adherence and compliance disparities within age groups. Like like I yep. said, you know, Emily here in the studio and I, and uh, James, you're not on treatment anymore, are you? Uh, no. Okay. But when you were, were you scared to death to go off it? I don't remember. Okay. <laughs> you were like 20 years, 20 years ago. Yeah, I mean, right. that's four. But, like, yeah, like I take seven prescription pills a day, and they're all – I take them because I didn't die from cancer 16 right. years ago, and I messed up with chronic issues. And, Emily, you're living with a, a tumor in your head, essentially, that's inoperable, so you kind of have to take this medicine when you take it. Is there more of a an inherent adoption – in the younger generations to stay on their medical regimens. I'm not talking teenagers that don't do anything that you have to really incentivize, but really maturing young adults in the 20s and 30s. Are we more adherent out of sheer fear probably, um, than, <laughs> than having to deal with, and, and regardless of disparity, regardless of age, exactly. gender, religion, whatever it is, I'd, I'd be really interested in exploring that with you. But I, I, this will not be the last time we've spoken, and we will definitely be in touch. Great. Look forward to it. All right. Well, thank you very much to Dr. Dirk Schroeder sure. from Ola Doctor and Alex Simon from Frost and Sullivan. You guys are great. Have a nice evening. Right. Bye-bye. Good luck to you. Uh, any final thoughts? Good show, everybody. Um, Alex? I, you know, I think it was great. Uh, you know, just coming off of having you, uh, Matt, and uh, Dirk as uh, two of our uh, our hits at the Congress, uh, we're very lucky to, uh, you know, be able to continue this conversation. So thank you uh, for having uh, us. 
And your website is what? Frost Sullivan. Uh, it's Frost.com. Frost.com. Yeah, the, the particular uh, the particular website that deals with the Congress is sort of year to year password protected for the people who are there. Right. Um, you know, but uh, yeah, we have information on, on our website. Well, check out hola.tor.com and Frost.com. And now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, number 217. That's right, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. We'd like to thank our in-studio guests, Reverend Dr. James Manning, Emily Morrison, calling into the show, Stu Campa, Alexander Simon, and Dirk Schroeder. All right, next week, join us, everybody. It is our drumbeat countdown to the OMG Summit. It's our pre-OMG 2012 spectacular show, previewing some of the big hits, the big stars who will be at the OMG Summit, such as Tamika Felder, you know where you love her, young adult survivor of cervical cancer and founder of Tamika and Friends, Sharon France, another one of our faves, founder and CEO of the National Coalition of Oncology Nurse Navigators, and the one, the only, Allison Allie Ward, young adult survivor, ovarian cancer, and she's the chair of our OMG Cancer Summit steering committee. And there's another surprise up our sleeves for next week. You're going to have to tune in and see what that's all about. So join us next Monday, same bad time, same bad place, 8 p.m. E.T., Matthew. All right, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free anytime at iTunes.stupidcancer.com or check them out for free in the archives at stupidcancershow.com. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the Q-O-Dex, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday. Good night, everybody. Good night, folks. <laughs>